Let's pray. Pray to us, O Lord, that we might love what you command and desire what you promise, so that among the many and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Not too many years ago, if you were a regular church attender, you were probably considered a fairly decent sort of person, mostly moral and likely to be a good neighbour. Increasingly today, however, regular church attendance may mark you out as slightly archaic and old-fashioned, probably simple-minded and quite possibly a hypocrite. If you've been coming to church regularly for many years, the problem is not that you've changed, but that people's perception of the church has changed, and that's not so surprising. Too often in the past, when the church should have been champions of the poor and the marginalised, it's very often aligned itself with the strong and the powerful. When the church should have been protecting the orphans and the widows, it very often became the abuser of the very ones it should have been caring for. Revelations of institutional abuse did not uncover many examples of repentant churches seeking to make restitution. Rather, we saw many claims of ignorance and innocence, buying silence and protecting reputations seem to be more important than the need to restore broken lives. And even though the vast majority of Christians are in no way responsible for the sins of a few, the exposure of systematic injustice and abuse has meant for many that the church is now held in contempt and the word of God is maligned. How the church conducts itself in the world, therefore, is a serious, serious issue. But it's not a uniquely 21st century issue. When Paul writes to Titus on the Isle of Crete, he's very concerned that the behaviour of church leaders and church members will reflect badly not only on them, but also on the gospel of grace and the honour of God. How we conduct ourselves in the world, therefore, is really really important. So Paul says to Titus in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, remind the people what they already know, that civil and political disobedience will bring the gospel into disrepute. As Christians we walk a line between being in the world but not being allied with all that it values. We're in the world because we're a part of and we participate in its political, its cultural, its social and its economic structures. We don't endorse them as coming directly to us from heaven or Mount Sinai, but nor should we reject them as being altogether worldly and ungodly. The structures of the world need to be constantly reformed and redeemed, but not rejected because they're human constructs. If the Gospel has nothing to say to us except as individuals, then we have no right to critique the world and its institutions. And we have no reason to believe that the Kingdom of God is anything more than pie in the sky when you die. And that's a very different picture to what the Bible describes. As Christians we need to be salt and light in our communities and doing whatever we can to promote human flourishing. But because we're not of this world, what we bring to it 
is a different set of values, a different vision of what human flourishing looks like. Though we seek to do whatever is good, though we obey rulers and authorities, slandering no one, including politicians, though we seek to be peaceable and considerate, showing true humility to everyone, our first allegiance is to God and the Gospel. If we are forced to choose between our conscience and cultural conformity, if we're forced to choose between God's law and human law, then civil disobedience is not just a possibility, it's a responsibility. Now I'm not suggesting for a moment that we march in the streets on every issue that we have an opinion on. But I am suggesting that we should be willing to suffer cultural alienation and even break the law if necessary. Now at the moment, Christians around the Western world are losing their jobs because they won't get on board with the secular ethic. Israel Folau might be the most prominent of those, but he's far from being the lone exception. As for the pending legislation on religious freedom, it's important that we recognise that at present that there are no positive rights of religious expression and practice. Rights afforded in Australian legislation at the moment are worded as concessions. So, for example, discrimination on the basis of sexuality and practice, well, it's illegal. But exception is made for religious institutions. And this is not a religious right, it's a concession. And increasingly, it is seen by many to be a privilege that no religion should be allowed. In effect, it means that if governments grant us rights merely by concession, then they can just as easily withdraw those concessions. Now, given the cultural trends at the moment, that possibility is far from remote. Be prayerful, therefore, and be mindful that, that religious freedom, well, it's not just good for Christians, it's good for all Australians. In the meantime, don't be afraid to speak the truth in love. Don't set out to break the law, but where possible, be obedient to rulers and authorities, be ready to do whatever is good, slander no one, but being peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone. Now that does not mean saying and doing nothing, for though that might keep us safe, it will diminish us as citizens and impoverish us as Christians. So there it is. Paul's telling the Christians of Crete and us to get out there into the world and do whatever is good. Now for Christians, doing what's good is the natural outworking of the gospel. Doing good in the world is not the cause of our salvation, it's the result. We don't do good in the hope that we might receive mercy and grace from God. We do good because we know that already we have received God's mercy and his grace. We don't do good to set ourselves apart or to bring honour to ourselves. We do, God, we do good to set God apart in our lives and bring honour and glory to him. And Paul goes on to give five particular reasons why we should bring honour to God and the gospel. 
by doing good in the world. The first reason in verse 3 is that we know better than anyone else. Even those who hate the church and malign the message of the gospel, we're no better than them. But whatever evil we think they might be doing, they're simply following their instincts apart from God. Though they might rightly be described as foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we have no reason to think that we're naturally any different. Apart from God and before any work of grace in our lives, we were exactly like that. So as Christians, we can't present ourselves as uniquely holy and untainted by sin. We're still a work in progress, not yet fully transformed into the image of Christ. In our inner mind, we certainly delight in God's law, but there's another law that works in us, a law that wages war with our minds, a law that makes us prisoners of the flesh and subject to death. No grounds there for boasting. On the contrary, we are physical beings created to image God. We therefore have a responsibility to work for the betterment of our world and its culture, for we are no better or more deserving than anyone else. The second reason is in verse 4, that we should be doing good in the world because we are the recipients of God's kindness. We don't deserve that. So we have every reason to pass on freely what we've received freely. If God loves us, it's not because we're in any way deserving of that. Have a look from verse 4. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And Paul goes on from there to give us a third reason to be doing good in the world. We're not only saved from God's wrath because of his mercy, God also makes us clean from our sins and he gives us a new life. The new life that he gives us is a spiritual life. It comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit when we first believe. It's the life that Jesus spoke of with Nicodemus. It's a life that's so new that it feels like being born all over again. It's a life that feels like being born from above. And it comes to us when we first put our trust in Jesus, when we trust him and him alone, when we determine to live our lives solely to honour him in all that we say and do. Now that might sound a little over the top, but that's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus never gives us the option of mildly endorsing him as a good and moral teacher. Intellectual honesty requires that either we reject Jesus out of hand as a deluded megamaniac, or we follow him absolutely as Lord God and Saviour. There's no space in between. From the second half of verse 5, we read, God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So because God has cleansed us from our sins and renewed us by his Spirit, 
we too have reason to work for cleansing and renewal in our communities and in our social, political and economic structures. Redemption and renewal is not limited to our body and our soul. It also includes our communities and the kingdoms of this world. All things, without exception, will be reconciled to Jesus through the blood of his cross. The fourth reason that we have to be doing good in this world is because, as Paul says in verse 7, we have been justified by his grace. Now you and I know that even though our sins have been forgiven, even though we're washed clean and have received the gift of God's Holy Spirit, that sin continues to haunt us. Sin continues to rear its ugly head and sometimes it will rule our lives. So what does God mean when he says that we're washed, that we're clean, that we're a holy people set apart to him by faith in Christ Jesus? Well, the evidence in my life and probably yours is that I'm not obviously clean or pure or holy. Like you, I'm still deeply sinful. In fact, I'm more aware now of my sinful, of my sinfulness than I was before I believed. In some ways, I was more content then than I am now. Now that I believe, now that I'm born again, now that I've received the Holy Spirit, well, sin seems to be a bigger problem than ever. So how should we understand our status before God? Well, helpfully, Paul here, particularly in Romans and Galatians, he says that our justification is by God's grace. That justification is credited to us, well, as a gift. That is, we are declared to be or reckoned to be righteous by faith in Christ Jesus. He who knew no sin has become sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ is declared guilty of our unrighteousness and he bears the punishment for our sins. And we are declared the recipients of his righteousness. We become the recipients of grace and mercy that rightly belongs to him. We are justified by his grace. So we are reckoned as clean and holy before God. And what God declares us to be, he is making us to be. And the day is coming when God's work of sanctification in us will be complete. And on that day, Jesus himself will present us before the glorious presence of his Father without fault and with great joy. But in the meantime, well, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. But we can be confident that he sees us as clothed entirely in the righteousness of his Son. If we can approach God like that, as a righteous Son approaches a Holy Father, then we have reason to approach the world in the same way. Not as those who are perfect, but as those who are perfectly forgiven. For the love that God has for us is not for us alone. God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes shall have eternal life. 
You see, there are no exceptions to God's love. But Christ died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And if God loves the world that much, then he calls us to be doing likewise, to be doing good in the world. Not loving the world's values and its sin, but loving the world's people in the midst of sin. And if that means being misunderstood and suffering for doing good, then so be it. If Christ chose not to come into our world because he may have to suffer, then he would have endured no cross and no suffering, and we would have received no salvation and no hope. But salvation and hope is the very thing that we have received. Look again at verse 7. But we've been justified by his grace so that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God, we know that whatever good we do in this life will live on in eternity. We're not a people without hope. We do not believe that whatever we do will eventually come to nothing, will eventually be forgotten, will eventually have no meaning or purpose. We don't believe that. Hope, then, is the fifth reason we have for doing good in the world. Because of our sure and certain hope of eternal life, we believe that everything has a purpose and finds its fulfilment and eternal destiny in Christ and the Gospel. So there it is. Of all people, Christians have every reason, or at least five, to be doing good in the world. In verse 8, Paul says that these five reasons are trustworthy sayings. And he wants Titus to stress them, so that those who have trusted in God might be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, for most people, that would be a good place to stop. Uh, but Paul, ever the pastor, he wants to throw in one more warning for Titus. He's referring back to the circumcision group in chapter 1 and he's saying, Titus, whatever you do, don't get embroiled in controversies and arguments, especially about the law. Appoint God the elders, sound in doctrine, teach the truth, be an example to the people, encourage them to be doing good in the world. Anything less than that will malign the word of God and dishonour our Lord and Saviour. If false teachers continue to be divisive, warn them twice and then ignore them. Arguing with people like that is unprofitable and useless. Now, I'm not sure how we might apply that text to ourselves. I am convinced that there's plenty of false teachers in the world, and the Anglican Church seems to have most of them. Indications are that at General Synod, that's not our Synod, but the Synod for the Anglican Church of Australia next year, will affirm a motion to bless same-sex marriages. It'll be put and it will be approved. And should this happen, then Paul's injunction to have nothing to do with them seems appropriate. For we can be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. 
I don't think there's a lot we can do about that locally, apart from prayer. What we must do locally, however, is as Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, he says we must show integrity and soundness of speech that can't be condemned, so that those who oppose us might be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And as he says in chapter 3, verse 14, we must learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good in order that we may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Grace be with you all. Let us pray. We thank you, our Lord and God, that you have saved us from the slavery of sin by the kindness and love of our Saviour, Jesus. Thank you that we have received forgiveness of sins and rebirth by your Spirit, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Having been justified by your grace and having been made heirs of eternal life, help us, Father, now, so to live our lives in this world, that your word will be honoured, your name will be glorified, and your gospel will be proclaimed, not only on our lips, but in our lives, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.